America, we are quick to point out flaws, but what is our elixir for moving toward a more perfect union and forever saying, I am proud to be an American? Hi, I'm Peyton Luke, and this is First Liberty Live. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you so much for your support of our content and our media. You truly make it possible for us to continue to bring this content and get the word out regarding First Liberty and defending religious freedom in our nation. So today, I have Tim Gagline with us, and Tim is the Vice President of Government and External Relations with Focus on the Family, and recently, he published a book called Toward a More perfect union. So Tim, welcome to First Liberty Live. Thank you, Peyton. It is great to be with you. It's a great honor. Well, we're excited to have you with us today and to talk about your book because I feel like it is just so impactful with where our country is right now. So I will ask, what inspired you to start writing this and how did the outline start to form in your head and what was that beginning process like? Well, two things. My favorite historian is David McCullough, uh, and I had the honor and pleasure of meeting him uh, many years ago when I worked for George W. Bush uh, in the White House. Uh, and in one of my conversations, I asked uh, David, what is it that concerns you most as a historian? And he said, I am deeply concerned that the rising generation of young Americans do not know the American story just on the basic uh, you know, principle uh, facts uh, that you and I might say, oh, we thought everybody knew that. Uh, at that point, he had done a lot of writing and a lot of traveling and was very concerned. And of course, uh, as one of the vice presidents at Focus on the Family, though I'm based here in Washington, I travel a lot, about a third of the time. And uh, Peyton, almost with pinpoint accuracy, whether I'm in the North or the South, the East, the West, it doesn't matter, I can be in you know, the dead center of the country uh, you know, after I speak and open it up for questions, comments, concerns, almost with pinpoint accuracy, regardless of the audience, people will say something like the following. Uh, first, I've never been more concerned about my country than I am now. Secondly, if they have children or grandchildren, they will say, and I'm really concerned about this rising generation. And then thirdly, they will say, and I don't know what, what to do. Uh, and so after all of these years of hearing, uh, you know, uh, these concerns, I decided to delve in to the empirical research and to really understand this era of disinformation and propaganda, the frontal assault uh, on facts, you know, uh, the frontal assault on our uh, American history, on culture, on civilization. I mean, this is the most extraordinary country in the history of mankind. Why is it that the rising generation of young Americans in very large numbers do not know even the basics? And what I found overwhelmingly is that this has been deliberate. And I write uh, about that at length in the book. There have been major and prominent historians who don't like America. They don't like the American story. Uh, you know, it, it makes them uncomfortable. And they have worked overtime, and I might say, unfortunately, successfully, uh, to impact young Americans to the point where large numbers of Americans don't know basic things like who is our first president? What is the United States Constitution? What is the Declaration of Independence? When was World War II? Uh, I mean, you know, can you have a free society for all the years ahead if you are taking an entire generation of Americans and utterly confusing them about their own country?
In your book, there was a really interesting story about your friend, Craig, and how when he was growing up and young, he went to one of the Macy's stores and he saw a book regarding the presidents of the United States. And he was so excited. So he went and asked for that and wanted that for Christmas, even when other kids wanted other things. And then when he got older and went to school, he realized that they weren't teaching the same things anymore. And I highlighted an area from your book and the line reads, the history and heritage Craig was previously taught to be proud of was now depicting something to be ashamed of. Instead of singing, my country tis of thee, he said he and his classmates were now singing, if I had a hammer. Yes. Yes, yes, it, it, that, that's an actual story. And the damage, the damage of the moral and social revolution of the 1960s, 70s, and early 80s, we're living with the contrails of those seeds of destruction and degeneration. And may I say, uh, it is very concerning. Uh, and, and I'd like to use just two examples, if I may, Peyton, in light of what you've just shared from the book. Uh, the first one, is uh, when you look at the empirical data, you know, everyone's entitled to his own opinions, not everyone's entitled to his own facts. So the question is, what do, what do young Americans know? And I uh, delved into uh, a large uh, a survey of public high school students who were given the test that legal immigrants are given when they become citizens. So these are these are the you know the the, the kind of bottom line uh, questions that you and I w would say you know these are these are the elemental building blocks of understanding American history, and and this large survey of public high school students showed that only one in four could name George Washington as the first president of the United States, uh, barely ten percent. Uh, I mean, that, that, that is shocking. You know, under 30% knew that there are nine justices on the uh, Supreme Court, and less than 30%, less than three in 10 knew that the president of the United States of America heads the executive branch. So, you know, we have to understand what's going on. And I didn't want to ring fire bells in the night, to quote Thomas Jefferson, because uh, I'm not an alarmist. In fact, I'm an inveterate optimist. And I wanted to use the first uh, you know, third of the book to say, where are we? What are the problems? And then two thirds to say, and what can we do about it? Because I think that that's, that that's very important. And I wanted to share with the reader some of the people who have been most responsible uh, for this willful, purposeful destruction. Uh, one uh, particularly infamous uh, so-called historian who is the most widely published, most widely read historian in American schools, Howard Zinn. He worked overtime to erase uh, our, our American memory and story. Uh, the 1619 Project, I know you're well aware of that, that somehow uh, falsely America uh, begins our uh, nation in 1619 when the slave ships came uh, to the coastlands of Virginia. You know, this kind of propaganda and misinformation has been spread around for a long time, and it's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. For sure. And recently, um, our very own Mike Berry wrote an opinion piece in the Daily Caller. It was kind of like a mini book report. And he, he praises you for going through it. And um, one of his lines was, Gay lying makes a compelling case that America cannot hope to prevent wars, save the planet, or cure cancer if we continue our present course of vilifying and ostracizing those who we once hailed as heroes. 
Yes, and I really appreciated that review by uh, First Liberty's Mike uh, Berry. That was uh, really uh, a, a beautiful review, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. And to his point, if I may, you know, it's one thing for you and I, uh, Peyton, to have this wonderful dialogue and say, these are the statistics, these are the data. But we have to say, what does it actually mean? I mean, when you apply this in everyday American life, what does this actually mean? What has it resulted in? Uh, you know, here's what it's resulted in. In real time, uh, we are watching some of the greatest figures of American history be erased. Uh, I, one of them is the founder of California, a very important Christian, Father Sarah. Uh, you know, there are millions of Californians uh, who don't even know uh, the, the history and how their own state, uh, you know, came into, into being. Uh, George Washington himself, he's a prominent uh, figure in the book, uh, being erased. Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, uh, James Madison. You know, I was speaking at a large university just a couple of years ago, and after I spoke, I had a number of students come up uh, to the place where I had been speaking, and they, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but they said, we are so pleased to learn about this man, Winston Churchill. We've never heard of him. Uh, you know, what, what a remarkable life. And I must tell you, I, I was stunned uh, that, that, that large numbers of otherwise young, bright, smart people really were clueless when it came to a towering figure of the 20th century, uh, uh, Winston Churchill, where, where the Allies would not have been uh, victorious without the centrality of Churchill. So I think we are very late and deep in this uh, uh, wokeism and cancel culture, and it's one of the principal reasons that I wanted to write uh, uh, toward a more perfect union, a phrase, of course, taken from uh, the preamble to our Constitution. It is not a rah-rah book, uh, as you know uh, from reading it. Well, we, we are very comfortable saying there are chapters of American history that are not the best of us. Uh, and we have to deal with those. It's very important. Every great nation, truly great nation, has to deal with its flaws and its sins. Nothing wrong with that. But that also does not mean that we do not say, but in balance and over against everything else, you have to conclude that of all the nations, of all of mankind, uh, this has been, the United States has been, objectively, uh, one of the greatest countries for good. Uh, that there ever was. I mean, it's it's really uh, worthy of that great phrase, sweet land of liberty. It's, uh, it's an incredible country, and principally because of the genius uh, of our founders and the drafting of the Constitution, which has to be central in any American history. And unfortunately, it's very often totally vilified uh, with so many of those misinformed so-called histories that have done so much damage. And what I appreciate about your approach in the book is that you talk about some of these, you know, past wrongs, but they're not as a weapon and you urge them to be a tool for us to better ourselves for the future so that way we can avoid these mistakes. So how do you suggest we move forward? Well, I believe, uh, Peyton, very strongly, and I say this uh, in, uh, in the concluding chapters of Toward a More Perfect Union, that, that the battle for the soul of our nation, I believe, uh, begins in our homes. Because it, it, ha it cannot begin in Silicon Valley. It cannot begin on Wall Street. It will not begin here in Washington. It will not begin in Hollywood. It has to begin 
in the places that are most local to us. You know, one of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, he said every neighborhood should have a banner. You know, I love that. We're all from someplace, you know, and whether you are from a, uh, a farm in a rural community or on the Upper West Side of New York, it has to begin uh, the transformation uh, toward restoration and regeneration and renewal of American history and civics uh, has to begin in our homes. And, and then from there to our schools, our churches, our parishes, our neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, we have a country to save. Uh, we, we, we are in a very perilous time. I mean, not, not since the Civil War have we been this divided. And so I think, Peyton, we have to ask our question, uh, this question, if we may, in, in, light of, in light of your question, I think we have to ask ourselves, what kind of a country do we want 50 years from now? What kind of a country do we want 100 years from now? And then I think we have to put the building blocks in place. And it begins with the American story. It begins with the United States Constitution. We have to go tell a new generation because we cannot assume that they know the basic building blocks of the story of liberty, our religious liberty, our conscience rights, the great work of First Liberty Institute. We focus on the family love FLI. Religious liberty is a very substantial part of what we're talking about here, because so often religious liberty and conscience rights uh, have been savagely uh, attacked and frontally assaulted. Uh, and, and religious liberty uh, is one of the golden narratives, not only of the American story and American experience, but of the Constitution itself. And I think you're so right in saying how it starts in the family. It starts in our homes and in our schools. And you and Focus on the Family do such a good job of Thank doing you. that and communicating to the family and teaching the parents and creating programs that the kids can listen to from a young age that's true to our history and true to the heart of America. So I do just want to say, you know, thank you for the work you. that you continue to do there as well. And of course, I have to ask, because, you know, we are a law firm and you know we yes. have a case going before the Supreme Court and everything so one of the titles of one of your chapters in the book is the perils of constitutional ignorance so how do we guard against constitutional ignorance within our schools I'm thrilled you asked that question because I have one purpose in that chapter uh, and it's the easiest thing in the world it's to encourage this generation to read the Constitution. Uh, I'm, I am literally thrilled you asked this question because uh, in all of the places that I speak, and I speak to a lot of young people, I always ask, uh, how many of you have actually read the Constitution of the United States? How many of you have read the Declaration of Independence? Uh, now, you know, I'm, I'm in an audience, and so it's, it's not scientifically based, but, but, but almost always, uh, people will, uh, will, will, will uh, raise their hands uh, in very low numbers. And in fact, I was just speaking uh, in a program two weeks ago, and I would say less than 20%. Wow, that and which is absolutely crazy to me um, that so few people truly have that background or that understanding because so much of it comes from reading it and absorbing it for ourselves versus just taking in what the media is telling us. May, may I say exactly. And, you know, uh, I, I, it's funny you would say this because uh, I was just at a dinner gathering two nights ago uh, with, a, with a number of young people, all of whom all of whom are in their late teens, and none of them had ever read the Constitution. And I, and I asked one of the young women there, 
uh, you know, I know you've not read it. How long do you think it is? And she said, it must take a lot of time. And I said, actually, uh, it's, a, it's a very short fleet document that is purposely designed to be easily understood and grasped. Because, I, as I said uh, to her, uh, you know, the Constitution is relatively short. It's very well written. Uh, and its words have a fixed meaning. Uh, its words do not change and shift over time. Uh, and, and, that is the, and that is by design. The whole purpose of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the amendments uh, is to be crystalline and that the average citizen uh, can, can read, uh, absorb, and understand the Constitution. It's one of the greatest uh, reasons that our Constitution has lasted as long as it has because it is very user-friendly uh, and it's applied, of course, uh, to one of the greatest uh, nations in the history of mankind. So I feel very confident that the shortest answer is, uh, why don't we have a national uh, uh, effort beginning in our homes to have every young person read the United States Constitution? What a, what, 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 what a terrific project that is. Yeah. And of course, now I have to ask, um, what was your favorite part of the book and what part got you the most excited when you were researching it? Like, I can't wait for this to be in the hands of the public, for them truly to absorb it and read it. I am a bottomless optimist. <laughs> uh, I'm an inveterate optimist. And despite the overwhelming uh, uh, difficulties that we see, I think we are living in a very perilous time, that despite the difficulties and challenges we face, I uh, say and conclude uh, in Toward a More Perfect Union that the best days of America are ahead of us. That's what I believe. Uh, I believe that regeneration and renewal and restoration is possible. And there are plenty of, uh, of, of examples, not only uh, in the lives of other great nations, but in the lives of the United States of America. You know, it was not a foregone conclusion uh, that, uh, that the patriots would win the revolution. Uh, it was not a foregone conclusion that the country would survive after the Civil War. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, the era of civil rights earlier, uh, the, the, the pro-life era that we are in, which is a remarkable uh, civil rights era, and the overturning of Roe against Wade. In another uh, era, the overturning of Dred Scott. You know, uh, it, it is remarkable in the American experience that renewal seems to occur uh, when you least expect it. And when you're in the middle of the kind of destructive elements and destruction that we're watching, Peyton, very often concurrent to those periods of destruction, uh, there are seedlings of renewal which are being put down that can lead us toward restoration. And I see all kinds of seedlings uh, of, of restoration and hope. And one of them is that I think we are living through an era of parental rebellion. I think parents have woken up, they've looked at the uh, impact of wokeism, cancel culture, erasure culture, and they're saying, wow, I didn't realize who is on our school board, uh, you know, uh, who is deciding the curriculum in our schools. Uh, and I could go on and on. I think there are all kinds of things happening in this uh, era of American history that are very worth watching because I think uh, they, they embody uh, the, the, the possibility of something better just ahead. 
I love that. I love your focus on the optimism and the hope for the future because it's so easy to get bogged down in the negativity of what we see on the news or the circumstances that are happening in classrooms nowadays. But anyway, I, I love that your focus is on the optimism and the hope because it's so true and America's best days are in front of it. So Toward a More Perfect Union is definitely a must read for all Americans who want the best for her and thank you so much for writing it and getting this in the hands of the public. So where can people find your work, find your book? Um, what is it that you wanna tell the people of where they can get your content? Sure, you know, uh, of course people, uh, many uh, people who buy books go to Amazon uh, and the book is there, of course. Um, I like faithfultext.com. I like faithfultext.com uh, because it's reliable. Uh, you know, you know, it's uh, uh, it's uh, truly uh, gritty, uh, and uh, and they they've uh, you know d done a good job. So I think faithfultext.com, uh, Amazon, uh, the book is easily gettable, and I hope people will buy it, read it, enjoy it, and above all, use it as a tool in their toolbox, uh, because uh, we 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 really uh, I think are living in a time. Uh, where uh, the themes of Toward a More Perfect Union will give us uh, the chance of the moral and cultural restoration uh, that we seek. And I, I hope people really enjoy the book. For sure. And Tim, is there anything else that you would like to add before I let you go? Well, I, I'd be happy to say one thing, which I, which I think is worth saying, and, and it's the following. Um, you know, uh, parents and local communities, churches, parishes, neighborhoods, which I mentioned earlier, I think very often uh, they have been overlooked as the kind of catalyzing effect that can lead us toward a better time. I think so often uh, we, we, we've kind of been propagandized that it has to be the public schools, it has to be government, you know, it has to be uh, the Fortune 500, it has to be, you know, uh, you know, institutions. And of course, I believe in strong institutions, of course I do, but, but I believe very often uh, we underestimate the powers of moms and dads. We underestimate the powers of grandmothers and grandfathers, aunts and uncles, uh, and those in our immediate uh, circle of family and community and church uh, who can have such an incredible impact on the next generation. I know that in our own family, we have many veterans, and yet uh, there are so many young uh, people in America who have never met a veteran. Uh, they, 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 they simply have uh, perhaps learned about uh, or heard about uh, things like World War II or Vietnam or the Gulf War, Afghanistan and Iraq, but they've never really met someone who has been there. And it seems to me that one of the best ways to create an interest in culture and history is for veterans to step up and to meet the next generation and just be authentic and share uh, you know, what your experience was and why America uh, is worth uh, defending. You know, a, a strong patriotic citizenry is what we're seeking here. And I think, uh, I think we're already seeing it. And I think that that's uh, the kind of goal uh, that, that, that will serve the country very well in the years ahead. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time and thank you for such a great book that's going to help us um, just have hope for the future and continue to move toward a more perfect union. So thank you. Peyton, thank you so much. And to everybody at First Liberty Institute, they're really, really appreciative. Yes. Well, thank God you. God Thanks. bless you, too.
So if this message resonated with you, you can support the work of First Liberty and restoring faith in America by going to firstlibertylive.com. There's the big red give button if you would like to continue to support us in creating this content. And First Liberty is your last line of defense and your greatest hope for victory.